Every single one of those people are ridiculously successful because they knew they needed everybody and not just customers. This season of the Entrepreneur Studio podcast has brought an extraordinary lineup of entrepreneurs ranging from business innovators and restaurateurs to philanthropists and trailblazers in technology. Today on the podcast, we're gonna revisit some of the highlights of this season's conversations, including clips from industry giants, Danny Meyer, Katarina Fake, Rebecca Minkoff, and several others. Joining me for this Reflections episode is Executive Vice President of Product, Technology, and Enablement for Heartland, Adam Mitchell. And I'm your host, Chris Allen. We're gonna to start today's discussion with the clip from restaurateur, Danny Meyer. And in this clip, Danny shares on the importance of investing in your team members and how his concept of enlightened hospitality led to the expansion of his business. That's a change in values, right? It's a change in values. And that was the day that I coined for the first time the expression enlightened hospitality. And I told our staff, I said, from this point on, you need to understand that we have the exact same five stakeholders as every other restaurant, every other business on earth. Mm -hmm. But we get to choose how we're gonna prioritize them. And every time you make a choice, you have to ask yourself, was this a good thing for our staff? Because that's our first customer. Yeah. Was it a good thing for our guest? Because that's our second customer. Was it a good thing for the community in which we do business? Was it a good thing for our suppliers? And, was, and then fifth, was it a good thing for our investors? And that's when I coined the notion of this virtuous cycle of enlightened hospitality that of course we wanna make money, but in a virtuous cycle, one good thing keeps leading to something better. So if you really wanna make money, the input should not be the investor. That should be, that should be the outcome. Danny Meyer is, I would say, the most referenced person of every single interview that we do, people you wouldn't even expect would be like, when we'd ask, I'd ask the question, who's you know the most influential entrepreneur? It's like, like Danny, Danny Meyer. Meyer. And one of the things that I'd say is obviously the virtuous cycle of enlightened hospitality, but the other impression that I really had was he had this business for 10 years that he had this one restaurant. He's like, I'm never gonna do another restaurant. And the reason he made the choice to even go and, and expand his business was because he had invested so much in his people that they didn't have anywhere to grow. So in order to keep awesome people, he expanded his business and started opening up other companies. Well, this actually harkens back to the virtuous cycle of enlightened hospitality. He's 100%. thinking about his staff first and it's like, oh, they, you know, there's a, there's a limit here. I can't continue to offer more opportunities for the people that I've cared about. If they're first, then I guess theoretically in that cycle, finding a way for them to have more opportunity would be solving for that first uh, step in yeah. your staff. What impression do you sort of take away and how do you kind of connect with this virtuous cycle of enlightened hospitality? Well, first, I think it's kind of hard maybe at first glance to, especially if you're a struggling you know, small business to think, man, if I'm prioritizing everybody outside of my investors, is that really like a winning formula? And he's a serial entrepreneur and an, a highly successful one <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at that. And he's not the first person and won't be the last person to advocate for thinking about your employees, thinking about your customers. Um, I love that he included community in that before investors. Uh, we'll get to JB here in a minute, but he clearly did that as well. And I think there's probably a recipe in there that requires some trust 
you know? Yes. But it's one that's proven, right? It's, it's hardened and it's uh, something that many, many of the most successful companies in the world, big and small, have exhibited. So, you know, I'd be curious if you have any experience or thoughts on what it, what it looks like to take that leap of faith where, you know, making a decision that doesn't necessarily seem investor first is the right decision and is actually, ironically, uh, or perhaps coincidentally, the best thing for investors, even if it's not super clear at face value. Yeah, I would say there's a piece of entrepreneurship that it's, you know, if you're the investor and you're bootstrapping, there's this idea of, uh, well, I need to make money. So this is for me and a sort of attach your success to it, right? When you play both roles of operator and investor, it can be, I'd say, really challenging to be like, this is maybe isn't best for me, but it will be best for me. And I, I think as an entrepreneur, investing in yourself what you really realize is that if you invest in your employees, they are an extension of your business that you, you really don't understand because they aren't a means to an end. Sure. I mean, they really aren't as disposable as you might think they are just because they're not as committed as you are. And I think that's one of the things that SMBs, you know, small business owners, entrepreneurs really struggle with is just how these expenses add up and how they, they may be taking away from something when you actually are building and investing in something. Sure. Yeah. I like the thought of, uh, of your employees as being an extension of your business and I mean, caring for your employees and putting them towards the top of your priority. It's going to increase your retention. You're going to be able to go out and hopefully recruit and retain really great people. And, um, you know, if, if they feel well cared for, they're going to be in a position to want to care for your customers even better. So, yeah. you know, I think that kicks off you're kind of on the right footing, the right foundation if you really are focusing about your employees first. And for small businesses, retention is a, that's a difficult game. Yeah. And if you can find some business. people that you trust, um, no, I mean, uh, retention oh, of employees. Retention, you're right. yeah. Okay, yeah. If you can find some people that you trust and invest in them and uh, put them in a position to, uh, to succeed and recognize that there's opportunity, you know, the, you're, you're, you're spending way less time on the turnover and getting folks trained up and they can grow and you can put more trust in them and they can take on more responsibilities and that frees you up to think, you know, about the broader mission or objective or needs of the business at the time. It's prob probably an arena that isn't thought as much about, kind of like community. You know, how you can interplay and fit into the community is a, probably not also super obvious at face value you know, not selling alcohol at your business because there's a bar next door. Is that actually the right move for your business? Well, you start to think about it. I mean, you know, the development of an area and being able to have uh, two places that, you know, have a lot of, of patrons every night and the ability to, you know, grab a meal somewhere and get a drink afterwards. is a, a real life example that you talk to somebody about and that's more people employed. That's getting patrons in both businesses, perhaps in the same night. And uh, it's creating a, a sense of goodwill and, and opportunity uh, amongst your, your peers in the space. There are thousands of ways to probably peel that onion. But I think that's a, like a really great vantage point to look at uh, as opposed to trying to eat everybody else around you. It's yeah. like, what can we do to- to, uh, to be of service. Yeah, to raise the tide. You know, one of the things that surprised me about that is that he had suppliers on there. And the way that I looked at his enlightened hospitality, it was a disposition towards everybody you interacted with and treating your suppliers paying on time, right? Uh, that's, if, if there, there's a, there is a known sort of like in restaurants, you don't give credit 
right? But suppliers will not give you credit or extend you credit. They only sort of like you have to pay when they, when they deliver it to you. And I think at the end of the day that that is a sign of some themes in certain businesses. And when- Like Danny, lack of trust or something? Lack of trust, right? It's like, are you actually gonna sort of pay your whole, your whole bill? But for Danny to say, not only are we gonna think about employees, customers, community, and then suppliers, he's got the same disposition to his, he looks at them as partnerships and being hospitable to them, right? And building up goodwill and good faith. Do you think the intention there is so when there is an issue that he's got some, some goodwill and um, the feedback that's coming from him to the supplier is coming from, from a different vantage from somebody that's been a great patron of theirs? I absolutely think for, for him, I think it's, it's a way he decided to like, act and, and it was based on what he believed. And I wonder if an, an outcome, I don't know if it was the one that he intended to, but an outcome is one of the things you see about suppliers is they are on the cutting edge with manufacturers and they are out there, probably they are the, the closest to the supply chain as possible. And they get these unusual things that, that they'll be like, they'll kind of bring you the opportunity for this real sort of reserve thing that they have. And they're like, hey, let's, let's take it to, to these guys. They treat us good. And that is something I absolutely think is an outcome. Yeah, think about COVID too, right? Like if, if you are um, some cog in that supply chain, who are you gonna prioritize? Are you gonna prioritize the people that have paid you on time, treat the, the delivery people well, you know, are always there when, you, when they arrive, whatever it might be? It's like, of course they will, you know? 100%. Well, you touched on JB for just a second. I say we watch the JB clip and talk about community. Talk to us about some of the collaborations where it's like, you know, you mentioned brewery a couple of times mm -hmm. and you don't sell alcohol mm -mm. at your pizza shop because mm -mm. of why? Because there are other businesses around us who do, yeah. you know? And so, you know, I just want to make sure that there's room and space for everybody, you know, and they, what they, their business is alcohol, you know what I mean? Yeah. I would rather people get our pizza and then go chill over there at the bar and have a drink. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that I mean, and that's and that's important. You know, um, and I, I've like one of my one of my recent collaborations was with uh, Boomtown Creamery, and we did a, a ice cream collaboration. And even with that, it was like, how can I help another local business? How can I, you know? We're both on 23rd Street. And really, for her, like she she recognized it too because she was like she does all these different flavors, and she was gonna do a black ice cream. But she was like, well, you know, it's the same ingredient for the black ice cream as for the black pizza. And so, okay. um, so she was like, why don't I just collaborate with JB? You know what I'm saying? And so she hit me up, and we collaborated together for the black ice cream. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? So. Instead of just doing it and, you know, and she has this one cool thing that's black and it's like, well, he's, the, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. Because she, she connected that dot on yeah, purpose. Yeah, she connected it on purpose, you know? And so that's, you know, like that's part of it is like, is like seeing those things and seeing those ways that we can add on to what the next person is doing yeah. and not feel like, you know, I got to be the only one or, or not feel like if I do this, then it might make what I'm doing look small. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? One of the things that left a huge impression on me is the making space for everybody. The way he looks at the community and how business is a part of the community and not it's sort of business and everybody else. 
it's really, really powerful and it's different and not a lot of people think that way. In terms of seeking out ways to partner with uh, the surrounding businesses, is yeah. that what you're saying? Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, is that like, he knows everybody. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, he, he was like, oh man, that'll work with this person over here and that'll work with this person over there. But I think, I do think one of the things that he was awesome with, with the pizza shop was that all of the, the immediate surrounding businesses kind of had some thematic sort of togetherness. You know what I mean? And, and you can just, you can see it in the, you know, the uh, not selling alcohol so the, the, the other business can do it. Yeah, well, pizza and ice cream play well together. That's, that's true. There's some good connective tissue there. They're also, yeah, um, you know, on the same street and not all that far away and looking for opportunities like that to elevate people that are in the grind with you is, um, I think it's a great idea. Do you have any words of wisdom or ideas on how small businesses could seek out that? You know, seeing your business as uh, connected more to an ecosystem. Yeah, part or, of a fabric. Yeah, part of a fabric. It will create ideas. I mean, the thing about entrepreneurs is they're ideators, right? You tend to come up with these ideas. And if you think about, if you can frame your business in as the part of the, the greater fabric, you will come up with these ideas on how you can evolve your business and how you can do, you can, you can approach other people to say, I have this idea. What if we did this together, right? And if you think about it, there was two scenarios that you talked about that, that, he, that you see in uh, that clip. You see him choosing to not sell alcohol for another business. That was his choice. Sure. But then Boomtown picked him. Oh, cool. Right? And that right there is, is it's, re it's really clear in just that little, that small little clip of that conversation that, that, there is a give and a take, there is a sowing and reaping, there is a, a, a something happens when you cross connect like that. There's a coffee shop that's right outside this building that they started as a food truck. It's kind of how they became known. It's actually, it's actually a, a double-decker, one of those London tourist buses, you know oh what I'm talking about? Oh my gosh, yeah. So anyways, they drive around and they sell coffee and they show up in my neighborhood park a lot, which is kind of how I came to know them. And anyways, they stood up this brick and mortar. It's very convenient. It's right outside the office, right? So I started buying their coffee and um, I'm not a coffee snob, but I like good coffee, right? And coffee has a unique way of kind of, you can become attached to you know, a particular coffee, right? And I, it's, it was just last week that I was like, man, I have been to this place pretty much every day for several months. I really like their coffee and uh, my my barber who's cutting my hair last week, he was asking me where I get coffee. And I told him, uh, I told him that I get coffee there. And he's like, oh, I, I used to work at a different coffee shop and they actually use their beans. And I was like, wow, you're kidding. So this, this coffee shop across the street, their entire business essentially is based on a partnership with another coffee shop in town whose focus is more on roasting beans. It's like that's like that's a lot of uh, it's a lot of weight to put into a local partnership. You talk about supply chains. Think about how difficult it is to get coffee beans, but it works, right? They didn't think that they had to create their own roast or their own blend that had to be uniquely theirs, right? Yeah. They were like, no, these people are doing this really well. It is absolutely good enough for us to sell, and we can have a viable and successful business leaning on the strengths and practices of another local community business that 
is killing it on this front. I thought that was, I thought that was uh, such a great example of of how you can leverage the strengths of those that are in your community that are doing something really well, even if it's very close, almost adjacent to what you're doing. You know, that is a, is an awesome point, and I think it's overlooked where. Some businesses will think I got to own the whole thing. I got to be able to deliver on the whole thing. Sure. And some businesses are like, you know what? I'm good at this part and I'm going to find the right way to get these other things met. Let's watch Katarina Fake real quick because I loved her thing about founder product fit. This is pretty cool. What are some of the things that you kind of look for to say, you know what? This is, this is worth investment. Well, I'd say the first thing is since we're early stage, yeah. we are very much about the entrepreneur the entrepreneur, him or herself, and how they think, how they present, the way that they are. You gave a really good example of an entrepreneur that we would not necessarily want to invest in, which is the one that's kind of like hoarding their, yeah. you know, their information or their idea and kind of hiding it from the world because chances are that everybody else has had the idea at the same time. There's thousands of accelerators Oh, yeah. <laughs> around the world. Somebody's creating it. Somebody in, you know, Kyoto or in Tel Aviv is actually probably working on the exact same idea, not to mention Silicon Valley. And, you know, so I do think that that is, you know, being stingy with your idea is actually kind of a very bad sign. So you want somebody who's kind of expansive, who is meeting people, who is asking questions, who is, and then somebody who's also, I think, very reality-based, mm -hmm. right? Like, okay, uh, we tried this and it failed and we're going to try something else because mm -hmm. I think a lot of people get attached to their idea. Now, that's not to say some people don't let their idea ride out far enough. That's another issue, yeah. right? They kind of like just flip like other people kind of like flip through various ideas one after another and never settle on one and never really commit. So that can also be an issue. Yeah. But I think that when you find a, a founder who has founder product fit, you can feel it, right? And you can also feel it because there's a feeling of a train, you know, like mm. find a parade and get in front of it. Like there's a feeling that they're being propelled by something external to themselves. Find a parade and get in front of it and founder product fit. I don't know if you know a lot of people like this, but if you're around entrepreneurs, like I, I was saying earlier, they're ideators. And there are some entrepreneurs or some people who ha have a point of view on a problem that they want to solve and they kind of hoard it. And that was the thing that we were talking about. And I loved, you know, the way that Katerina talked about that issue. And she's like, it's not investable. If you are not open with your ideas, because execution is everything. Do you think execution is everything or it's like the passion? Because I don't, I feel like if execution was everything, you could hoard, you could sit on the idea and then unveil it. And if execution was everything, then you would be successful and they would have been willing to invest. Yeah. It's, it seems like it's more, at least in my opinion, it's more to her like, are you willing to share? Are you willing to get feedback? Are you willing to pressure test what the idea is? You know, how much passion is there for you? Are you willing to meet with 100 people to get their feedback and, mm -hmm. you know, ultimately, ho hopefully develop some connections that can help you in the long run? That would be difficult for me. I would be the guy that would be like, I, I got to sit on this. I got to harden this before I want to talk to people. You know, uh, that's probably why I'm not a serial entrepreneur. Uh, but it makes a lot of sense. The people that are the people that are really good about getting out and networking and socializing and trying to pressure test their idea to get feedback are probably the people that are best set up to 
seek and garner investment from those that are looking to invest in people. Yep. Investors are looking for people who have great ideas that they can bring to life. And that's what, that's what I think is really, really important is the passion, like that sort of thing you were talking about that it's kind of like the, uh, she was talking about this feeling of being propelled. Yeah. I love how she described find a parade and get in front of it. Specifically, there, there is that feeling that you talked about where there's passion around the idea and you, the, this, uh, this founder is, you, when you speak to them, they, there's a sense of them being propelled. And one of the things that, that I'd say is a challenge, it's like ideas that percolate and never get executed on is, is one that's not investable. Ideas that there's a, an abundance of ideas and there's a lack of executing on them and right. delivering on them. The lack of reality base. That it's she, both of them. Yeah. Right, so finishing the swing, right, and being able to execute and hit milestones is one of the most, in, you know, sort of, sort of investable things. And I, I think her, especially at early stage, is the thing that I really like is where she's at seed stage and she's, her VCs, and her firm are really trying to evaluate: is the is this founder investable, and is the idea investable? Do we believe that they will execute? Right. Right. At, at that stage, do you feel like nailing the execution is the most important thing? Or do you think like the seed of a brilliant idea, an idea that could really work, and somebody that's got the chutzpah to, to bring the right people in to realize that is, is more important? You know, I think as an investor, you're sitting there looking at, do I believe this person it, they are believing in the entrepreneur because it's like there isn't necessarily always proof that they're going to be able to bring it to life. Sure. Right? Yeah, especially so at that stage. Yeah. They're looking for some kind of evidence that it's possible and they're likely to, you know? Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, uh, it's like how much would an investor pay for just an idea, right? Not much, right? Typically, you know, at that stage, they're not necessarily looking, they're, they're not looking for, you know, revenue, you yeah. know what I mean? And they're going to value the company. They're going to value the, the idea plus the, the likelihood of the entrepreneur bring the team together to execute. So I don't know, it's like chicken or the egg, I guess. But uh, in my mind, I think the stage that she's at is probably one of the most fun and the highest risk. Yeah, can you imagine the characters that she gets to meet? Oh, geez. I, I, I have to say, like, if I were her, it's kind of like, okay, uh, who, who's my team that's meeting everybody before they get to me? Because <laughs> I'm sure she gets a lot. Yeah. She gets a lot. Well, do you have, like, what's your point of view? Do you, like, because I, I know that, you know, you spend a lot of time in your, in your role sort of bringing things to life, right? Sure. So what, what is sort of your relationship with ideas and execution? Hmm. Because I do know people bring you ideas. <laughs> yeah, that's true. What is my relationship to ideas and execution? You know, I think for us, honestly, a lot of what needs to be done has presented itself pretty clearly. Mm. And it doesn't, most of those, those ideas that we end up investing in don't feel like a reach. Yeah. And that's not to, that's not to boil it down to like a simple equation, but ultimately, you can get a pretty good feeling considering the size of our business, what customers need that we don't have. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take a super trained ear to be able to determine what that is. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy or inexpensive or uh, just trivial. Like a lot of those things haven't been done for a reason, right? Yeah. And for us, I think that's more of the challenge. It's choosing which of the 
I'll say gaps we have in our suite of solutions that we have to get after and sp spend money on and uh, go find the right folks to build them and develop uh, some, some expertise or go seek it out. And that is perhaps uh, equally as challenging as, um, as the filtering of which ideas to go do. Um, totally. If that makes sense. I mean, you guys spend a lot of time, juice is the juice worth the squeeze. Yeah. You know? And uh, I think at the end of the day, what tends to happen is when you pick the ideas and you decide as one team to execute on them, they tend to get done. You know, so I, I think that's one of the things that I admire about you and, and the team is is the team and that you guys operate as a team. And I think it's I think it's super cool. I'd say one of the things I, I think we should watch Charles Best because speaking of kind of the team, he find he found this way to get companies to team up with. The, this sort of cause marketing, you know, he was kind of like donors choose was really the, the, it was kind of like multiple innovations at once happening at one time. It was like crowdfunding, doing it for schools, cause marketing. He was on the front lines of these things and, and it really did require a team. So I, I want to take just a second and hear his expression of uh, what, what they did, especially with Crate and Barrel. Let's do it. And we went to Crate and Barrel and we pitched them on giving donors choose gift cards to their best customers. And we even, we kind of ghost wrote uh, a cover letter for them saying, hey, Crate and Barrel customer, you've invited us to enrich your home by shopping at Crate and Barrel. Now we'd like to invite you to enrich a classroom. Here is $25 for you to spend on the classroom request of your choice and get the, the feedback from, from the classroom. And Crate and Barrel was up for it. They were even up to do a test, a study, to see whether or not giving out these donors choose gift cards had lifted purchase intent and even sales at Crate and Barrel by, by the customers who got these gift cards. And the short answer is yes. Uh, and in fact, the, the Wall Street Journal did a, a story saying, ah, here finally is a demonstration of a company doing well by where they actually quantified just how well they did by through through an act of charity because all these crate and barrel customers who got this donors choose gift card were like this is amazing no company has ever done anything like this for me before i'm going to spend that 25 dollars on a classroom request of my choice and you bet i'm going to be back at that crate and barrel store sooner than i had planned and ready to spend more than i would have otherwise um, and that's an example of they do that in like this is the tester in me. Did they do that in geographies, or is this some sort of like they had some attribution where they they had their their customer and they looked at the profiles that they sent them to and saw you know their accounts go up? They actually did random assignment. Uh, okay. So there were some. It, it was uh, customers within a I think a five mile radius or ten mile radius of a crate and barrel store who had spent more than two hundred dollars over the last six months. So we're talking engaged, uh, important customers not far away from a crate and barrel store. That was the population. Sending and, email or physical mail? Uh, it was a physical mail gift card wow. at first and subsequently it was email. Okay. Um, and th there was random assignment, so there could be true isolation of um, just how much did purchase intent and actual purchases increase as a consequence of, of doing something good. Yeah. Uh, but, but putting the power in the hands of the customer. Awesome. I will say Charles Best is one of the most thorough, articulate, clear speakers. So, I mean, it was remarkable to watch him on the fly do that. And 
He has a longtime relationship with Timothy Ferris as well, which is really interesting. But the the thing that I loved about him was like, I would throw him a curveball and he would just go boom, boom, boom. boom. I was like, okay, this guy, this guy is on another level. But his ideas of 9-11 moment in New York and this, he just spins up this whole idea and the, the amount of effort, energy, the thing we just talked about with Katarina, you know, he found a parade and got in front of it. I mean, the guy's a giver, he's articulate. But the, the thing that really struck me uh, about him is his willingness to experiment, Ex- total experimentation. And that thing with, you know, Crate and Barrel was, was an experiment, but he already knew this sort of psychology of getting the, te- to team up with a brand, to team up with, his organization would actually have a multiplicative benefit for both. Sure. Because the $25 gift card uh, to Donors Choose would end up in being a much higher donation for the Donors Choose and it would help somebody, you know, in a classroom, help kids in the classroom and Crate and Barrel would have more sales. Yeah. And that's the thing that I really, I loved was his willingness to experiment and and doing these bi-directional, multipliers of, of benefits for the business. You know what I found interesting is um, I often struggle to give to foundations that are big national, international foundations that are that have of some purpose or cause. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I tend to think and want to give on a, on a more local basis. Yeah. Maybe it's just so that I, can, I could see and be proud of whatever effort somebody's uh, putting forth. But this is a really unique way uh, to leverage a big, probably I, I assume Crate and Barrel is an international brand, to leverage an international brand, but um, empower them and their customers to give on like a hyper-local, hyper-specific way and letting their customers determine where that goes, mm-hmm. you know, like school of your choice. Well, I assume that it's. I assume that it was the customers that got to choose which mm-hmm. schools that the. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean that like it was the donor. The donor gets to choose. The donor gets to choose. Mm-hmm. What a incredible, very very creative path to kind of leveraging something that is really big, but executing in a hyper focused way. Yeah, I, I wish that more people were thinking about means of donating that uh, could merge those two things. Because I think there are probably a lot of people like me that hesitate to give money to or an organization where you, you don't have really great insights as to how that money is actually being distributed yeah. and where it's going, you know? Yeah, I agree, I agree with you. It, it is really hard. And, and I think that that is what made you know, donors choose so special. Now, obviously there are, there are others, you know, that some of the water centric platforms have taken similar approaches, but I think one of, one of the- Are you talking about water four? Have you spoken with water four? There's like charity water, water four, hydrating humanity. There's, there's tons of those sort of- Started to learn about those recently. Water, water ones that, that have adopted some of his, his model. I think the biggest, I mean, one of the things we talk about is entrepreneurs are looking, how do I drive repeat business? How do I increase average ticket, right? Those are sort of business, tangible business outcomes that a choice like this yeah. to say, hey, how do, who can I work with to have sort of like the partnership sort of oriented, it is a brand affiliation move to go crate and barrel plus donors choose because they're getting an education and a cause sort of uh, oriented connection, but they're also crate and barrel. So they're building onto their brand and a brand that gives back. 
if you think about it, they drove repeat business and increased average ticket with that one move. And I think that those are some of the things that small businesses and entrepreneurs should be thinking about. How do I work across the community? How do I work across the uh, other uh, businesses? How do I connect with organizations to build my brand, to uh, be affiliated with people, and drive repeat business and increase average ticket? There is a business outcome for a move like that. Totally. I mean, there are probably a lot of simple things that can be done. Just even a food drive or a coat drive, yeah. right? You're gonna get people into your business that want to donate that probably have not or are not regularly coming in. You're probably gonna develop some goodwill from the organizations that are distributing those or maybe even receiving them and they're probably more likely to come in. It's gonna feel great if you as a regular customer were aware of it and you were able to bring some stuff in and then you can feel good knowing that the owner of the, the, uh, the proprietor of the business that uh, you know, your supporting is also giving back to the community. There is such a, a snowball effect to giving that everybody feels good about, I think. And so it's not at all surprising to hear that uh, he was able to quantify or Crate and Barrel was able to quantify that it increased buyer's intent and the number of purchases. But that's also a, a, a fascinating use case to see flush out, you know. Totally. And be, to be able to do it with technology and to prove it and have the attribution is is a really powerful one. And I think that having technologies, you know, like some that we have can really give people that, you know, that advantage to do meaningful things like that. Sure. All right, well, so we're going to go from donor shoes where a lot of enthusiasm from Charles to Rebecca Minkoff, which uh, high fashion. I, I love that one of the biggest things that she talks about here about staying connected to the customer and the way that she did that uh, early in social media. This is pretty cool. So the business was officially born once, once there was traction on the bags and my brother said, let's formalize this. And so for a while he would, he was my daily phone call, then he would fly up and we really had to figure out who do you staff up with first? I had an intern, okay, good. Uh, you know, we really felt like we were outsiders within this industry. We had a showroom, so they were taking care of sales. So we really had to focus on design, PR and graphic design. That mm -hmm. was it at the time, production. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was a very tiny five person team that we could, you know, again, we were bootstrapping. So we could only afford someone when if we had, had orders. If we had the orders and the money mm -hmm. to pay them. So it was very tiny. It was lean. We couldn't get an office lease. So I convinced my landlord to rent me in a, another apartment in my building. And that was my office. Wow. And that was after working out of my, you know, my apartment with five people. And my boyfriend would wake up and want to watch TV on the couch. And I'd be like, no, it's 9 a.m. We, we, we should be working. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So I think we always made decisions, especially at that time, of where we could see white space and take advantage. So social media was just beginning. The only form of advertising or reaching your customer was through a store or a magazine. We didn't have $40,000 for an ad in Vogue. Yeah. So the fact that we could talk to our customer online was like mind blowing. Yeah. And when I did, stores and media were like, you shouldn't talk to your customer. You're making a huge mistake. You need to be better than her. You need to be perceived as like, I'm holier than thou. And my brother and I felt like, why? This is great. We get feedback, we do surveys, we're doing crowdsourcing. I mean, it's I was- It's for them. It's for them. Yeah. And I was taking orders, especially during the 2008 recession, early crowdsourcing. They were like, can you bring back the purple from 2006? I'm like, yeah, send me your credit cards and I'll go uptown and make it. And that's, what I, that's how we did it. Wow. And so I think that for us, that constant connection to the customer and never getting to the place where you're like to them yeah. really made her loyal. All right, so 
Rebecca Minkoff is probably one of the most resourceful people I've ever met. <laughs> For real. Okay? The way that she was able to, to sort of thread together, stitch together, I'm using fabric you know, terms, but whatever, to bring together this business, bootstrapping, connecting with customers. She's got all kinds of just, things just made sense. And it was a counter culture movement. And so I think one of the things that I, I love, and I wanted to ask you about this, because I, I do appreciate your being where you are in this business and still thinking about the customer uh, to the degree that you do is pretty powerful. This in fashion was like, don't talk to your customer because you as a brand need to appear as better than them so they can aspire to be as cool as you. What was your, what's kind of like a Adam Mitchell impression of- Hearing that? Hearing that. <laughs> you know what it reminded me of? The same thing happened, um, and you'll hear people talk about it in technology because Steve Jobs had a not all that dissimilar approach, Yeah, which was don't, uh, this is paraphrase. Don't listen to your customer. Show the customer what they what they want. Yep. Uh, don't ask them what they want. That is a luxurious strategy. You you maybe have to be one in a billion to really be able to pull that off well. And candidly, I think it's a much 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 harder path. Your customers are the people that are supporting your business and being really clued in to what they want, what wh- where their interests are evolving or changing. It's a cheat code. And it's not particularly difficult to do. It's not expensive to do. Everybody can create a free MailChimp account and survey you know, everybody that they've got a mailing list for. You could probably pretty quickly get an email list of, uh, of people that are inside the demographic that you're trying to go after that maybe aren't yet patrons and figure out what they're interested in. It's not a difficult thing to get line of sight and insights into what your existing customers or prospective customers want. And then you just got to go out and do it and fulfill it. And um, that's part of uh, hearkening back to Danny Meyer. It's it's probably the simplest thing that you can do uh, to nail the virtuous cycle is not necessarily the execution, but having a clear understanding of what your customers or prospective customers want. And constantly have that in the back of your mind. Figure out what you can do to start to finagle yourself into being better for them. That's it's it's actually quite simple. Yeah, probably not enough people uh, really invest in uh, the time, at least, into to to doing that and getting those insights. You know, I, I think there's a just to the point of of you know not having the time. There is this real struggle that every entrepreneur has to figure out, which is the balance between my time allocation working on the business versus my time allocation working in the business. And when you spend time listening to customers, that is time spent working on the business, you know? Because you, you have to be able to, you know, spend the time to go get the feedback, then synthesize the feedback, work with your team on how to best implement that, right? Sure. And I think that, that is, that's probably the struggle that entrepreneurs really face is that I would do that if I had the time. It's probably convenient for you know, the Steve Jobses of the world who were really marketers, a ridiculously good one, but you know, he, he spent a lot of time, he's like, I'm gonna figure out how to do marketing great and it was sort of on his timeline. I'm gonna build something amazing and tell everybody about it and make it so appealing. But I do think that if the way that we've seen business evolve, there are the one, one in a billion that can do that. But the way that businesses are evolving today is the ones that are the most connected to the customer and spend the most time understanding their customers tend to be the ones that have consistent success. Yeah. You know, a really simple way, you don't even have to invest anything, is to just look at, look at your social media. 
see how people are engaging with you, what they're posting in, on, or about your business, probably gives you a pretty good understanding of what you're doing well, what they're interested in, especially the demographics, you know? And the the younger people that are in your establishment now are the same people that are likely that going to be there to support you in the long run. And um, having a good understanding of what they're interested in and you, it doesn't necessarily even have to just be about your business, but you know, if you if you dig in and explore what else they're interested in, maybe you could uh, start to tailor your your menu or your retail offering or your service or whatever to uh, to cater to them a bit better. That doesn't require anything other than some time scrolling on social media, which yeah. we all <laughs> which we all do a little bit of, sure. Yeah, you know? a little bit of customer listening. Uh, yeah. Well, thinking about all of the conversations that we just recapped. What is one kind of takeaway that you've been impressed by that, that you think that the listeners should sort of take a closer look at, you know, watching and listening to all of this? I think almost all of them had uh, some semblance of, uh, of a focus on community and their own angle. And I, I don't know, but my hunch is, is that that is an undervalued aspect of success uh, or focus of success. Mm-hmm. Figuring out who's supporting you, who are, who are the businesses that are around you that stand to benefit from your success and you stand to benefit from theirs, and thinking about creative ways to support each other and creative ways to, uh, to support the community. And, and much of that requires no money, a little bit of time, and uh, you know, I think, again, thinking about just a, a basic food drive or coach drive as the yeah. owner approaches, you know? Yeah. It'll, that will get a lot of people into your establishment. And uh, I think generate a lot of goodwill, and uh, you know everybody likes to feel everybody feels good doing good for the community, right? And doing your part in strengthening the fabric or the social construct of your your community is a uh, a wonderful way, I think, to harden your place in the in the community and probably to to increase purchase or buying intent alongside it. You know, absolutely. The takeaway that I had was was similar. It's that we all need customers but we all need each other maybe more, you know? Because if you think about just the way that Danny talked about all five aspects of who we need to run our business, there is a way to conduct business that brings people together rather than isolates on, I need money from a customer in order to do something that I want with my life. And I would say that every single one of those people are ridiculously successful because they knew they needed everybody and not just customers, you know? And I think that was a really big part of, uh, of season two is, is, is that, you know, the, the studio really is about trying to bring together this community because we need each other. Um, you know, obviously we're a supplier, you know what I mean, for a lot of entrepreneurs. And I think that, you know, we need customers, our customers need customers, and these are, these are just a really it's a really important time to kind of bond together and to come together to do something meaningful in the world because uh, making money isn't necessarily the only thing that we're here for. It's great. It's good stuff. Hey, Adam, thanks for sitting down with me, man. It's good to have some reflections time with you. Absolutely. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for listening to the Entrepreneur Studio Podcast. Coming up next on the podcast is a look into the emerging trends that we see coming for 2024 and how you can prepare for the evolving role of technology to strategic considerations in everyday operations. Be sure to see the show notes for this episode for links to resources on how we can help you run and grow a better business. 